What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Tuesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern, on Pacifica Affiliates WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD in Kasilof and Anchorage, Alaska. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project, streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Uh, Today we're talking about the International Hearing Voices Movement, and our guest um, from the United Kingdom is uh, Jackie Dillon. Uh, Jackie is a voice hearer, and she's chair of the Hearing Voices Network in England and actively involved in International Hearing Voices Movement. Um, So thank you for joining us on Madness Radio, Jackie Dillon. Hi there, Will. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks a lot for joining us, um, Jackie. It's really great to have you on the show. I had the um, the pleasure of meeting you um, several years ago when I was traveling in England, and I know you're a really important um, campaigner and activist and leader in the International Hearing Voices Movement, and I would love to take uh, this time to hear more about that and to talk about the experiences of people who hear voices and how the movement is um, providing different ways of support. Uh, maybe we can start out by talking about you know your own experience. You're someone who hears voices, and maybe you can tell us about that. Sure. Um, well, I've heard voices for as long as I can remember, really. I can first remember clearly hearing voices when I was about three years old in nursery school and I could hear voices in my head talking about me. And for quite a lot of my early childhood, the voices were quite positive. Um, They were very comforting and made me feel less alone. There was one voice um, that has been there kind of persistently, really, throughout my life, uh, the voice of the Great Mother. And she was a voice that would come to me and comfort me and soothe me. And she's provided a lot of support, really, throughout my life. Um, but as as I got older and my life became more complicated, um, that was kind of reflected through my voices, really. And they became more negative and more critical, um, although I still heard positive voices. So I had a kind of a more complex relationship. Um, and, yeah, it's something that's, that's kind of been there in different ways through my, my whole life, really. Now, when you were a kid, did you tell um, your parents or adults um, that you were hearing voices? Did you have any trouble with that? It sounds like they were they were pretty positive at that point. They were positive, although I guess they were distracting and intrusive. I remember being about six or seven and, and having real problems getting to sleep um, and, you know, got to, trying to go to sleep and just hearing a lot of voices and, and it being very noisy in my head. Um, and sort of naturally developing a sort of strategy by using a radio to kind of distract myself. Um, But I guess because I I was sort of growing up in a very unsafe environment, um, it wasn't something that I would have talked to people about. Um, And in part, I guess, I I knew it was connected to the bad things that were happening. So a lot of it was my way of coping. and, and, And it felt quite private, really, not something that I could have easily shared with people. Now, you say you, you were growing up in an unsafe environment. Can you say a little bit more about that and how that might be connected to the voices that you were hearing? Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's a whole big story, really. Um, my family were involved with a group of organized paedophiles, um, so I was I grew up in a, in a very 
um, abusive um, environment from birth and the people that were meant to protect me didn't protect me. They exploited and betrayed me. And, you know, I'm very clear that my my voices and other sort of experiences that I have and ways of coping that I have were really survival strategies. They, they were... Um, kind of things I did as a young child to, to kind of cope with the, the unbearable reality that I was experiencing. Wow, now that's, um, that's not a, uh, an uncommon connection, is that right? That, that children who have traumatic, abusive um, home environments will start to develop voices. Well, it's, you know, from, from the research that, that's coming out, it seems that it's, it's very, very common. Um, and in fact, when I first started reading Marius Rom and Sandra Esch's work, um, I, you know, I was really pleased that they were making that connection. Their research shows that 77% of people link hearing voices with traumatic life events like hearing, uh, like sexual abuse and, and, and other forms of trauma. You know, not everybody who hears voices has been sexually abused. But certainly there's a link with traumatic life events. And there's, there's a lot of other research that's been carried out subsequently, which really affirms what many of us with first-hand knowledge of madness know, that, you know, bad things happen and they drive you crazy. Yeah, I think it's really true. I mean, I'm someone who's um, heard voices. It's not as um, difficult or as bad or as pronounced as it was uh, years ago when I was in the mental health system. Um, but, you know, I've struggled with voices and, you know, unusual sensory experiences and altered states of consciousness since very early. And that was one of my own sort of uh, recovery process was to make the connection between the, the trauma that I've been through, the, you know, the uh, abusive experiences in my child, different kinds of trauma, not just family trauma, but also, um, you know, surgical um, trauma that I went through, medical um, experiences that I went through. And um, things at school, like bullying experiences at school, all seem to be really interwoven. And a lot of the people over the years that I've spoken with um, who have different mental health diagnoses or get labeled with psychosis or voices or um, they have this connection with, with trauma. And it's interesting that you, as a child, you develop positive voices as a way of coping with this. So it was really what was a helpful, protective experience for you. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that's, that's common for a lot of people that, that they may be sort of very distressed by their voices, but either when they first began or even still whilst they're hearing distressing voices, um, there can be at least one positive voice. And sometimes the work is about trying to increase the volume of that voice before you start trying to work with the sort of more destructive voices. Um, but as you say as well, a lot of people, you know, will have had negative experiences in, in childhood or growing up, um, but then there will be other sort of experiences and it's like cumulative, you know, the kind of impact of bullying or poverty or racism or, you know, a whole load of things that, that can kind of impact on, on somebody's kind of whole being really. And um, I think there just is this kind of growing acknowledgement that, you know, our lived experience is kind of what makes us who we are, including, you know, hearing voices and madness and altered states of consciousness and all that stuff. It's a pretty clear connection, the idea that overwhelming and crazy situations drive drive people crazy, drive people into madness. Now, Jackie, I'm, I'm really interested in the experience of hearing voices itself that you've had, because I know that... Um, 
a lot of different people describe the voices differently. And I have had, in my own experience, a very different range of different kinds of things that um, happen to me. Some are very intrusive voices that are alien to me that are in my head. Sometimes I hear voices that are outside of my head that are alien to me and, and intrusive. Other times I hear, I can hear noises, I hear machinery, I can sometimes hear conversations that are going on that seem really independent of me and then other times things seem really directed to me so can you tell us a little bit about your own experience of what exactly is it like for you to hear voices and then how does that fit into kind of the range of diverse experiences that people have well i guess like you i've i've had all of those experiences i've heard voices in my head outside my head you know they've felt very frightening and intrusive they felt unconnected to me and quite alien to me you know, I was lying in bed last night and I suddenly heard um, sort of mechanical noises and I said to my partner, you know, can you hear that? Because I wasn't sure, you know, sometimes you need to just check out is that kind of something that's just happening for me or is it happening out there too, you know? And he said, no, I can't hear that. And um, I couldn't really account for that, you know, what that was about. Um, and yeah, so I have a whole range of experiences. I guess most commonly now, um, because I've done quite a lot of work with my voices, we have conversations and often during the day if I'm kind of preoccupied with work or my kids um, they'll be in the back of my head talking to each other um, sometimes about me or yeah as you say about other things and you know my head can feel quite full up but I guess over, over time and experience I've, I've kind of adapted and found ways of, of kind of like the inside of my head feels quite big so I'll just move to the front of my head <laughs> and leave them at the back of my head, sort of doing what they're doing. And, you know, I'm at the front and, and kind of dealing with the world, as it were. Um, I mean, I guess, yeah, partly it's about my internal experience and that, for me, my sense of who I am inside is this kind of quite vast world, really, um, and how I kind of navigate that and how that interacts with the external world. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> Do you find talking with other voice hearers that people describe a lot of different ways that, that people hear voices? I mean, I, I, I've heard a whole range of things, but I also think there's real commonalities of experience. Um, you know, there seems to be lots of, you know, for example, voices that are very aggressive or, you know, voices that are sort of representing people's despair, so kind of telling people to hurt themselves or you know, that kind of stuff. Um, voices that are commenting on what people are doing. I guess in my experience, people that experience most of their voices from coming from outside um, sometimes struggle more to see the experience as being theirs, you know, that it's a subjective experience that so people will be kind of looking for ex explanations in the environment. Um, and that seems to happen more commonly, but not always. I mean, I'm, I'm loath to kind of, you know, categorize really because I, I don't think you can. And I just think that there, that there are a whole range of experiences that there do seem to be commonalities. Another kind of common thing is a split between good and evil. So, you know, people will have a kind of a god and a devil um, or a, a part of them or a voice that is quite helpful, but there'll be another part that argue with, argues with that part. And so part of the work may be about actually sort of seeing the world in less black and white terms, you know, that we aren't just good or bad. 
one of the things that was helpful for me um, for years, I would have a really strong, aggressive, just mean voice that I would hear. And then eventually I started to listen to it enough and, it, and I recognized it as a, being a male voice and being my father's voice. And that was a big dramatic shift from what's happening to me to, oh, okay, this is connected to my family experience. When I first went into the mental health system, I had no sense of my family being traumatic or potentially I thought I had a good family I mean I relatively speaking I mean I thought I was you know so making that connection was was really um important to me and one of the things I'm also curious about is um I've noticed that when I have less stress in my life I'm less likely to hear voices or have any kind of difficult altered states but also mysteriously sometimes it doesn't make sense. Like there, I can be in a, in a low stress situation and I'll have something happen to me. That's a non-ordinary a voice hearing experience or an altered state. Do you, do you see that connection between stress and um, difficult situations and in your own experience with voice hearing? Yeah, absolutely. There's somebody um, that, that I know, a friend and colleague who says that for her, when her voices start increasing in volume, um, it's a sign she's stressed, you know, and that, her mom gets a migraine and her voices will increase. So I think lots of people kind of recognize that it's, it can be an indicator of being stressed, hearing more voices. But of course, there's lots of other things that, that trigger voices. And in, in the course of my work, talking to people, uh, you know, I've just discovered that there can be very personal triggers. So you can, you know, seemingly be going along fine and then suddenly voices start and and much in the way that you describe you 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 know I think it's about sort of saying well what has happened to me something's triggered this for me and sometimes it can be positive feelings you know if they're if they're unfamiliar or if they're frightening or if they're attached to bad things that may have happened you know sometimes something good happening can make you feel really worried that it's going to be taken away for example um so just kind of understanding yourself you know seeing your voices as a part of you and your whole experience I think is really important. Now, going back to your, your childhood, you said that there was a point where growing up, your, your life kind of became more complicated, and then the voices got more complicated, and you started to have some negative voices. And, and so tell us more about what happened and then how that kind of developed. I mean, I guess, it, you know, it was paralleled by my increasing kind of desperation and, and the abuse kind of worsening, really, and perhaps just me getting older and developmentally becoming more conscious and aware about what was going on. So I think it was probably a combination of things. I mean, as a mum, I've seen that children's sort of developmental different stages in terms of their cognitions mean they're sort of able to think about things differently. So I imagine it was a combination of reasons, but I guess what happened for me is that the voices became more destructive and more critical I began self-harming and I began I guess experimenting with food and I mean they were all attempts I think to, to feel more in control that's how I understand it now my relationship with food and, and self-harm and all of those things so the sexual abuse that you experienced as a child had all these implications for all these different what would be called mental illness symptoms by the system but they're kind of really really tied back to your abuse experiences and they were all coping mechanisms or protective mechanisms that you were trying to develop for yourself. I'm just working on a talk that I'm going to be giving um, later in the year which is sort of focusing very much on those kinds of coping strategies and very much 
reframing them as survival strategies. And it, it was from a conversation I had with Marius Rom, and he turned to me and said, imagine a child being in that situation where they're experiencing a rape at the hands of somebody who's meant to be protecting them. And I said, yes, I can imagine it, you know. And it's like, for a child in that situation, they are literally fighting for their survival, you know, both during that sort of traumatic event and afterwards. And I think understanding how desperate somebody is in that situation and that actually they are doing what they can, they're doing their best. Now, Jackie, did you at some point turn to the mental health system? Did you go to counselors or a hospital? And what was your experience there? As I said, I was, you know, I was abused by a group of organized um, paedophiles. So part of my experience was, you know, having a lot of threats to be, to be silent. And so I never spoke about any of the abuse to anybody until my early 20s um, because I was literally too terrified um, and the thing that really liberated me to start talking was the birth of my first child. Um, but like many mothers who've been abused, and many fathers actually, I've, I've since discovered that just the experience of becoming a parent um, really just kind of takes the lid off of all of that stuff. And and that's when things really started to kind of break down for me. Um, my voice has kind of got a lot worse much more destructive, my self-harming increased. I became really, really kind of paranoid and terrified. And um, and that led to me being admitted to a psychiatric hospital, um, which was, you know, in itself kind of pretty devastating. And, you know, so I'm in this hospital and very reluctantly kind of decided that I, I had to start talking about the abuse because... You know, at that time, I was I was very clear that that's what was kind of making me feel so crazy. So I was assessed, I was being assessed by this psychiatrist, and we were in this room, and he's sort of asking me questions. And I, and I basically said to him, you know, I want to tell you about some of the things that happened to me when I was growing up. And I, I started to tell him, and then he just said, can I stop you now? Um, actually, you know, we've had other people in here reporting these kinds of things um, but actually when we get their families in and we all talk together they realize that this is part of their illness and you know these things haven't really happened to you oh wow so you were you were trying to get help for very real crimes that had taken place that were at the the basis of your distress and the crisis and then you were told that that was a, a delusion that was a symptom of your uh, of your schizophrenia is that what they were saying that you were schizophrenic they never got to make that diagnosis, but that was certainly what they were thinking about and talking about. And, um, you know, yeah, they, they they felt I was deluded. That you were just psych psychotic and this was just a symptom of an illness, like uh, your brain your brain was broken or this was some biochemical thing. And So that's a really clear instance of psychiatry playing the role of social control and just really, pr in, in effect, protecting the abuser in that situation. Yeah, yeah absolutely and silencing and, you know, and, and really kind of making me and a lot of other people feel more crazy, you know, just that kind of denial of, of your reality. Jackie, what, what year was that 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 happened? That would have been 1993. But this is, people should know that this is something that still happens all the time. Well, it absolutely still happens, which is why we're talking today, Will. That's why I'm still here doing this stuff, because, you know, I, I subsequently kind of got out of hospital and went and got myself some really good help 
you know, and that help kind of essentially what was based on the premise that I was saying the truth and that everything I said made sense and was a kind of a consequence of what had happened to me. And um, but I, you know, I felt so outraged really by my treatment um, and what it would have meant if I'd listened to them and believed them really you know to deny my own experience in that way and to believe that I had an illness would have been true insanity really so that was a very dangerous moment but it sounds like you went in being clear that you were abused but if somebody had gone in and they weren't quite sure or they were doubting themselves then someone's life course could just be completely completely different absolutely and and also that there's there's a way that you could sort of say you know I've I've heard other people's experiences where they'll sort of say to a psychiatrist, you know, but what about the child sex, sexual abuse? And they'll say, well, that's all in the past now. You need to deal with your mental illness. So I think psychiatry has lots of ways of dismissing and denying the impact of abuse, you know, and, and kind of focusing on this sort of biochemical genetic problem. With the treatment being medications, essentially. Absolutely. And that you have to stay on medications. And yeah. Yeah, and then um, it seems like the anger um, is a really important part of the healing process, but the medications can take you out of touch with your, your anger and sort of remove some of your own personal resources for your own natural healing process, and you get kind of stuck in that whole medication biolo- biological framework. Completely. I mean, I think, you know, that, that medication is very much used to silence people, and um I think one of the things that I've seen is that when people do want to start working with their voices, that sometimes they need to start reducing their meds to kind of be able to start engaging emotionally with their own experience. Because, uh, and, and for me, my anger, <laughs> you know, even though, again, the system kind of pathologized it, you know, you're not allowed to be angry. Um, a lot of my work was about kind of reclaiming that right to, to my outrage and to, to try and use it constructively, really, to try and channel it. Um, Judith Herman, uh, in her book Trauma and Recovery, talks about um, a survivor mission because she really acknowledges that, that survivors have have rage and that it's entirely appropriate, um, but that there is a need to, to kind of focus it um, and often connecting with others who have a similar sense of outrage is a really powerful thing to do, you know, and trying to bring about collective change. So I guess that's what I've tried to do with my rage. And so, Jackie, what really helped you was finding progressive therapists, is that right, who really validated your experience and said, yes, yes, this did happen to you, and then let's go from there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we all, we all need to be believed. Um, it's it's kind of fundamental, really. If somebody's sort of saying, I don't believe you, then it's hard to kind of start with anything, really. And so for me, being believed and being respected, you know, one of the things that I found really shocking in hospital um, is that there was no kind of acknowledgement that I was an intelligent woman who actually had lots of ideas about how to live with distress because I've been doing it all of my life. And suddenly I was expected to become very passive and do what I was told and be really infantilized. You know, so for me, it was important to work with therapists that were kind of, you know, acknowledging, but also really willing to share power with me, I guess. 
Yeah, that idea that you you're, you have, and I think everyone has some degree of coping ability and their own insights and their own familiarity because you've been living with these experiences your whole life. That's really important. That, that idea that you are an expert by experience and that you know everybody does have an inherent wisdom. Um, and that I think part of my work is about kind of supporting people to, to kind of relocate that really in themselves because I think part of what can happen... In, in the system is that people lose that. And it's, you know, it's about kind of trying to help people reconnect with that. The point you make about anger is so important because, I mean, I was just at a meeting a couple of weeks ago where they talked about someone who was going to be released from um, a uh, locked uh, facility and the person just raised their voice, got angry in a meeting with their counselor and, you know, boom, they were force drugged and they weren't released. And just the experience of anger itself is so pathologized. It's so turned into a symptom of your disease. And then you get into these control environments where anger is absolutely forbidden. And that can really, really harm people. It can really um, interrupt just a natural expression of, of feelings and emotions that people need to be able to have access to to heal. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, a lot of the work I do with people is around anger, actually. You know, there's a lot of work and, and around people's entitlement to anger and, and helping people to safely express it because, you know, often people have experienced negative anger, you know, people acting it out at them. Um, and because they've been so silenced and kind of constrained, not being able to express their own anger and, and it feeling kind of, destructive you know and so for me I remember my therapist giving me this poem um, years ago by a, a British poet Stevie Smith called Anger's Freeing Power because he really recognized sort of you know that a lot of my self-destructiveness was about this unexpressed anger and a lot of my very sort of aggressive voices was about this unexpressed anger and it was so liberating for me to sort of finally be able to be angry and embody that and feel entitled to it as it's like self-worth you know if somebody does you are wrong it's it's in, entirely appropriate to feel angry about it it's protective and it sets a boundary and it sort of expresses your value doesn't it yeah and if you've lived with experiences where anger was always destructive and anger was always tied to violence and abuse then yeah you don't want you don't want to get angry because you have that that association and I think sometimes we can also get into a cultural thing where you know people don't want to be angry they want to be nice all the time and so um, you know anger gets really pushed down with a lot of um, negative uh, consequences if you're just tuning in this is madness radio we are speaking with Jackie Dillon of the UK she is a voice hearer and chair of the hearing voices network in England and we are speaking about the experience of hearing voices and the international movement of people who hear voices to help each other and change how the mental health system internationally responds to voice hearing. Jackie, let's um, talk about the hearing voices movement. You, you mentioned um, Dr. Marius Rome, who's one of the developers of the hearing voices movement. And, and for people who don't know what the hearing voices movement is, how did it get started? What's the story with the origins of it? Well, it started about 22 or so years ago. Um, I guess the pioneers are, are, are Professor Marius Rom, uh, who is a Dutch psychiatrist, and his partner, um, Dr. Sandra Escher. She's a, originally a scientific journalist, and a woman called Patsy Hogg. And Patsy um, 
and if she was a, a patient of Marius and she'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia, she was hearing voices. And at that time, Marius was treating her, you know, he believed in schizophrenia and was treating her in the kind of traditional way, um, mainly through administering neuroleptic medication. And really, she, um, uh, you know, asked him to stop treating her differently um, and really challenged him. And it was really through his work with Patsy um, that they began to research the phenomenon of hearing voices, that was really the kind of the start of the hearing voices movement. So it really came from a patient who was pushing for a different way. Patsy turned around to, to Marius and said to him, you know, why is it that you go to church and pray to a God that you can't see, yet my voices aren't real? And as a rational scientific man, this really struck him as, as a kind of very valid question. Um, you know, because, of course, there are these kind, kind of culturally accepted delusions, um, like, you know, praying to a God that you can't see, um, that, you know, culturally we define as okay um, beliefs, um, but then other beliefs that are not perhaps shared by a whole load of people are, are deemed meaningless. And I think, you know, that idea for him was, was really significant. The consequence, they, they kind of invited um, voice hearers to, to a big conference that in fact they went on Dutch TV, uh, Marius and Patsy, and spoke about voice hearing and asked people to phone in. Um, and they got several hundred calls afterwards and, and astonishingly a lot of calls from people who'd never used services, who'd never sort of, you know, been mentally ill as it were. And um, so again, for the first time, Marius encountered a whole group of people who were voice hearers that had never been patients, you know, who'd never been diagnosed with any illness. Um, so again, it questioned this idea that hearing voices was an illness. And that also people were experiencing voices but just living with them, and it wasn't that, that distressing for them. They just learned ways of just living with their voices. Exactly. And I think, you know, a lot of the, the strategies that we've developed and ways of working with voices have entirely come from people who've lived with hearing voices because they know best about how to live with voices. So Marius and Sandra and other people have interviewed hundreds of people who hear voices and ask them in, in great detail about their experience and in great detail about how they live with that experience. Um, and yeah, that, that's helped us kind of really develop knowledge and expertise around living with these kind of what can be difficult experiences. Now, after the experience of going on Dutch uh, television and sort of finding that there were so many people out there, did they is that when they started the first Hearing Voices um, groups? And tell us about how that got started and how the groups work. An organization called Resonance was formed, which is the Dutch Hearing Voices Network, which still exists to this day. Somebody from the UK, um, somebody called Paul Baker, was at that original con uh, conference in Maastricht and basically came back to, to England um, and was just kind of, you know, really inspired by this. Invited Marius and Sandra to England to give some talks and really that inspired people here to form the first group back in 1988 in Manchester. So Manchester is a Hearing Voices Network, England's spiritual home, and I say that as a Londoner. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that was the first group. Um, so that was uh, sort of 21 years ago. And what happens in these groups? This is a place for people who hear voices to share experiences, or how, do, how does it work? And um, are counsellors involved, and is there 
partnership with the system or how does it actually happen? Well, I guess it's evolved and it happens in lots, lots of different ways, but essentially what a hearing voices group is, is a group of people who meet, who share the experience of hearing voices, um, you know, and hearing voices in itself is a taboo experience. It's not something that people can easily share in, in ordinary life. Um, and of course, voices often talk about taboo things. Uh, certainly taboo, taboo for the individual, you know, they're very private things and things that people find difficult to share. So I guess initially it was about providing a sort of safe place where people could share those taboo experiences. But then it's, I guess it's also important to kind of remember that in traditional settings, if people talk about their voices, there's a risk of, you know, forced medication, loss of liberty, a whole load of things can happen which have silenced people. So, you know, it's quite radical, really, to create a space where people could talk freely about this taboo experience and, and nothing happened. That was really important. And, and really that idea, you know, has continued to this day. But groups run now in a variety of settings. Uh, in England alone, there are 182 hearing voices groups. So that's a lot of groups just in England. Scotland has it own, its own network and so does Wales. So over the 20 years of these hearing voices groups, there's been a growing recognition that it act they actually do help people. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. And groups, we've run groups in the community. So, you know, um, with grassroots community organizations, we've run groups in acute statutory setting settings. We've run groups in prisons. We're currently running a group in the high security hospital. You know, at the, end, the National Health Service here... Um, you know, runs a lot of groups or is involved in running groups. So it's something that is both outside and inside, really, traditional services um, and, and has certainly become more incorporated. Now, Jackie, are there studies that will, are starting to show from a kind of a scientific point of view that, yes, these are helpful and, yes, they do reduce people's distress and help people stay out of hospitals and stay out of crisis and that kind of thing? Well, there are some small... Um, quantitative studies that, that look at things like, yeah, you know, does it decrease the amount of admissions that somebody has? I guess the problem is that, you know, we're kind of wary of trying to fit ourselves into to those kind of clinical categories, really, um, because, you know, going to a group isn't necessarily about a reduction in symptoms. You know, I don't think about voices as symptoms. You know, that's very much sort of buying into a sort of medical paradigm and my voice is a part of my experience and, you know, so it may not be about getting rid of symptoms and you can't necessarily sort of quantify somebody's life experience. So I guess what we're more interested in is kind of qualitative research and in part the, the new book that we've coming, got coming out is, is, is that really. It's our evidence. It's qualitative research that shows how this stuff works and why it works and why it's effective. And the experience with medications, I mean, people in the group, some of them take medications, some of them don't. People sometimes are reducing medications. Yeah, a whole load of things. Again, I mean, it's quite common for people to be on medication. It's um, a lot of people will have come via the psychiatric system. And, you know, many people who attend groups are still um, using services in, in different ways. So, uh, you know, so therefore a lot of people will be taking medication and, you know, the reality is that medication is only, only effective for 33% of people. Um, that's, you know, World Health Organization figure. 
um, and out of that 33% of people, only 50% of people will you know, experience a significant benefit from that and the other 50% will have varying degrees of benefit. So, you know, there's a significant number of people who don't find any benefit um, or particularly around their voices, you know, they may feel less bothered because they're sedated. But yeah, you know, there's a whole load of um, issues really around medication. I think, you know, people have a lot of concerns about taking it and there are a lot of effects beyond potentially therapeutic ones. Now, in terms of the criticism that the groups or the approach get, you mentioned that it's just pretty much a taboo in the mental health system to talk about yeah. voices, and th- that's really seen as, oh, you're just going to kind of make things worse by by talking about them. And you were you were silenced when you were um, getting um, traditional treatment. And what about the concern that some people have? I mean, I think it's really from a stereotype and fear that, well, you know, these voices, you know, they're out of control and they could be telling you to commit acts of violence and that so you know we really can't let people be in the society we really need to if you hear voices that's just it's a dangerous dangerous thing and you need to be getting treatment from a doctor lots of people i know hear voices telling them to kill people and they've never done it you know and i've actually know lots of people who don't hear voices that have had the impulse to kill people and have never done it either Right, which is a good point. That's the, the impulse to kill people is actually not that uncommon. Just like the impulse to commit suicide, it's just something we don't talk about. So exactly, and I, I, you know, I had a real learning lesson. You know, many years ago when I first started doing this work, and I was talking to a woman about her voices, and she said she was saying to me, "Oh dear, you know, they're telling me to kill myself, and it's really awful." And and, you know, and I was sort of in, in employed and I remember sort of feeling really alarmed, you know, am I going to kind of be responsible here and what do I do? And feeling really panicked, um, should I alert somebody, but I don't want to do that. And so I just said to her, how long has it been going on for? And she went, oh, about 20 years, dear, you know, and, <laughs> and I, I just sort of thought, okay, don't make assumptions here, don't panic, you know, actually ask questions, you know, and this woman has been living with these voices telling her to do this for 20 years and had never done it because she didn't always do what they told her to do. I think actually if people are hearing voices telling them to hurt themselves or or somebody else, actually it makes more sense to, to you know, ask more questions about that because then you're going to make more sense of it rather than just medicating somebody and hoping it will go away because that's essentially what they're doing in doing that. Yeah, and, and not talking about it and not grappling with it and being alone with it can make things worse. And we have a system now where just talking about, I have a voice that says to kill someone, that can just get you locked up. So people, yeah. aren't, people aren't very um, inspired to talk about <laughs> these experiences when, you know, you can get into trouble um, for them. What are what are some of the coping techniques? I know that a lot of the um, the real approach is to develop ways to have acceptance and to learn to live with the voices. What are some of the the recurring um, methods that people develop and can learn to, as to better handle their experiences of hearing voices? Well, I guess, you know, it depends on, on where the person is in relation to their voices. When people feel very overwhelmed and that their voices have a lot of power and control, um, often what I might suggest is actually learning some distraction techniques and learning some techniques that actually start redressing the imbalance really in the relationship between the person and their voices. So we have lots of sort of what we would call short-term strategies where we might say to voices, uh, I'm not going to listen to you for the next five minutes and then the person might extend that to 
20 minutes, half an hour. People start making appointments with voices, say to voices, I'll listen to you at three o'clock. And actually what you're trying to do is renegotiate the boundaries of the relationship. Um, and that takes, you know, it can take a lot of persistence, but it is stuff that works. And hopefully once the person feels a little bit more in control, then they can start perhaps asking the voices questions more directly. One of the things I personally have found hugely important, and I've seen it in other people, is actually changing your attitude to the voices as well. You know, if, if you've got voices that are being very abusive to you and then you're responding in an abusive way, you're just kind of perpetrating this very abusive dynamic. And, and a real turning point for me, and I've seen it with a lot of other people, is when you actually develop a more compassionate attitude towards your voices and a more accepting attitude. And that actually starts shifting the relationship with the voices. Yeah, and I think understanding your own trauma can help you to really see see yourself much more compassionately and say, wow, you know, it makes sense that I'm having this horrible voice in my head because of look at what I went through. And I think that's, that you know, that kind of work really supports that process. I think if people just are trying to work with voices in isolation without really linking it to their lived experience, then, you know, they're going to kind of hit some obstacles really I think the work is, as you say, a lot about really linking um, the voices to things that have happened. One of the things that, that Marius Rom and uh, Sandra Escher and Patsy Hogg developed was the Maastricht interview, which was um, initially a research tool, but it's been adapted for use in therapy. And that asks lots and lots of questions about voices and the different voices that, that people hear. But that actually helped gather a lot of this knowledge about you know, the different way that people experience voices. And often when voices started, who the main voices are, like you, you gave the example of the voice of your dad, people's dominant voices are often voices that are connected to sort of dominant people in their lives, for example. So doing that kind of work really supports the making sense of the voices and the learning to live with the voices. There was a long period of my life where I had a really difficult time going out into, into public and I would find that, you know, I would just have all these problems, including voices, when I would go out into public. And then just making the connection, it sounds really simple, but making the connection, just like you said, to be able to distract myself and to go out with headphones and listening to music was something that was really helpful um, for me. And it sounds really simple, but when you're really confused and overwhelmed, making those simple kinds of connections and making those simple kinds of steps can be really difficult and when I am um, I also had an experience where I would was hearing voices on the other side of my wall and I was just convinced that they were planning things and talking about me and I was so bent out of shape by this that it was just really making it really hard to just be at, be at home and feel safe at home and so I put a fan on that made ambient noise really loud fan in my apartment and it helped to create this background distraction that really helped me to, to cope with it. So, you know, and, er and I think your point also is that a lot of people, people have different coping strategies. And so it's not about an expert coming up with a prescription. It's about people coming together in groups and ex sharing experiences and trading what they've learned with each other and kind of trying, trying different things. Um, Jackie, I'm, I'm interested also in this really fascinating side to the whole experience of where the voices are, are positive. And, you know, I think we have um, 
historically we have a lot of examples um both i'm thinking of like joan of arc i'm thinking about um, poets that hear muses i'm thinking about people who are spiritual saints and prophets who hear voices there's a huge huge cultural uh, sort of heritage to the voice hearing experience can you tell us a little bit about that and how it might be connected to some of these negative experiences or do sometimes people have their negative voices kind of turn into positive voices and is there a creative and spiritual positive side to this as well yeah i mean there's lots i could say about that i guess partly it's about you know how we define these things i mean there's lots of places in the world where for example schizophrenia doesn't exist currently and you know hearing voices wouldn't or psychosis as we call it wouldn't be thought of in those terms so it's a very sort of western way of thinking about those experiences you know in a couple of hundred years ago in, in the west they would have been thought about very differently and historically um voices have been thought about very differently much more positively much more seen as as a human experience and as you said there are lots of sort of significant people um jesus muhammad socrates plato pythagoras you know lots and lots of blake Descartes, Goethe, Freud, Jung, they all talked about hearing voices and many, many more. And it was a significant experience, you know, it was an important experience for them. And, I, you know, as to how do we, I mean, you know, I've, I've pondered that question, you know, why is it that for some people, particularly in the past, these things would have been seen or used in a more positive way. But although, I, you know, perhaps some of those people were tormented as well, and, and I guess it is what you know, human beings do with their experiences, you know, and um, I guess my sort of gut feeling is that voices come from some kind of overwhelming experience, and that could be any number of things, and it's kind of what we do with it, you know. Including the overwhelming experience of contacting God or contacting spirit. Exactly, yeah. Any overwhelming experience that we find hard to integrate, I guess. How about your work uh, today? I know you're involved with the upcoming World Congress on um, Hearing Voices. You are involved with an anthology, and you're also involved with the campaign to abolish the schizophrenia label. That's right. Yeah, lots of exciting stuff going on. I'm, you know, I'm really excited by the World Congress. Um, every year we uh, have an intervoice meeting, so you know, there's an international hearing voices network, so it's something that's been sort of very popular and successful and grown in, in the UK. Um, but it's spreading across the world, um, in, including um, in Oregon, which I was delighted to hear about. So we're having this World Congress this year in Maastricht, and so far we have over 80 presenters from all over the world signed up to give keynote talks, presentations, workshops, all sorts of things going on. We've got artists coming, musicians. Um, so it's going to be a really spectacular event. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm uh, actually signed up to go and present at the Congress myself. If I can swing the, the money to get there, but I'm hoping to be able to, to make it out. And we are starting a Hearing Voices uh, group here in Portland, Oregon. So there's a lot uh, a lot going on. Absolutely. And I know there are other people coming from the U.S. And, and, you know, the U.S. is one of the places where this movement hasn't taken off in the same way that it has in other parts of the world. So, Why do you, um, why do you think that is, Jackie? I have some of my own thoughts, but what, what is your sense of that? My sense is, my main uh, thought on that is that because of the, the kind of stranglehold of the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> That's about it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in a nutshell, I mean, I guess there are... 
there are issues about such a vast country and about your healthcare system and politics and you know there are kind of other issues but I think you know that the biggest clearest issue is the pharmaceutical industry they're just a huge obstacle. I think also there's a stronger tradition in the UK of, of seeing um, madness psychologically we don't they don't I guess you don't quite have as strong of the whole biological biomedical approach there as we do here in the US. Yeah, perhaps, you know, there's a different kind of history. And, I've, you know, I've, I don't know, I've had these conversations with other people, you know, there's a kind of, there's a different kind of history politically in this country. And I think there's lots of different things. It's, you know, um, it's, it's kind of speculation. But, you know, I'm really hopeful um, that that will change, you know. And um, because the great thing about this work is that it doesn't take a lot of money. And, it, you know, what it takes is, is a small group of committed people really getting together and and just trying to sort of change their own worlds, really. And in doing that, that is a very powerful thing to do. We uh, don't have a lot of time, but tell us quickly about the campaign to abolish the schizophrenia label. And also, if people want to find out more about the uh, Hearing Voices movement and about uh, your work, if you can point us to resources and how to contact you. Briefly, uh, the campaign to abolish the schizophrenia label, it's um, an alliance between a group of academics, clinicians, service users, activists, carers, families, friends, you know, people that really are saying that the label schizophrenia needs to be abolished because it's unscientific, um, it's stigmatizing, and it doesn't address the root causes of mental distress. And, you know, what's quite exciting about it is that we do have some sort of quite key psychiatrists and scientists involved um, who are supporting this and, and are asking um, for, the, for the label to be abolished. So um, I know that you've got a link on the Freedom Center site. Um, if people are interested in finding out more, they can go to www.caslcampaign.com. If people want to find out more, um, about the International Hearing Voices Network, they should check out www.intervoiceonline.org um, and that will tell them more about the Congress and what's going on around the world. Um, and for the Hearing Voices Network in England, www.hearing-voices.org. Jackie Dillon, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. That's great. Cheers, well, that was brilliant. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to an interview with Jackie Dillon. She is a voice hearer and chair of the Hearing Voices Network in England and actively involved internationally in the Hearing Voices uh, movement. That's all the time we have this week on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio broadcasts every Tuesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern on Pacifica Affiliates, WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD, Kasilof and Anchorage, Alaska. Co-produced by peer-run mental health communities, freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall. Music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.